Amazing. That's the words we just heard. Amazing. Our God is amazing. He is mighty. He is awesome. And that mighty and awesome God has given us his gifts through his grace. He has shown favor to us, and that's amazing. You should all be happy to that. Amen? We're alive today. We're here. Some of us are somewhat healthy. (laughs) Uh, But it's amazing. I get excited when I think about being saved. How about you? We're saved. We're not just saved from something small. We're saved from eternal separation from God. But because of his grace, he has given us a lot of things that we don't deserve. Most of all, his son, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And that's what we're going to talk about today, God's grace. And so, I'm your substitute teacher for today. Filling in for Pastor Steve, those are uh, some big shoulders to, to fill in for, but uh, we're going to go over 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. And we're talking about the grace of God. And two things I want you to remember. To remember and to respond. Remember God's graces and respond accordingly. Remember God's graces and respond accordingly. And when you think about grace, everyone knows that common definition of unmerited favor. Favor from God that you didn't earn. That is God's grace. But we get a clear picture of God's grace in 2 Timothy. So if you want to turn there first while you keep your hand in 2 Peter. In 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, starting at verse 8, Paul says this. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, the gospel, that's the good news of Christ Jesus, according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So because of the good news of Christ Jesus, the good news of Christ Jesus, that he saved us from our sins, we can have joy because of that. That's a picture of God's grace. The best picture, the greatest picture. Can you think of anything better than life? Can you think of anything better than life right now? How many of you have come close to death? been on your sick bed. You can think of you get nothing better than life, right? When you have COVID-19, you're sick. You can think of nothing better than life. So God's grace is best seen in how he saved us from death and he's given us life 
That makes me happy. It should make you guys happy too. We should have joy because of that. Especially in the world today. What do we see in the world today? You watch the news, like we mentioned, there's sadness, there's grief, there's trouble. People are being left behind in Afghanistan. People are dying from COVID-19. People have cancer. There's riots in the streets. But God. (laughs) But God. Right? So, these things in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, he talk about being in Christ from eternity, before we were ever born. This was God's plan. It was revealed in his incarnation, in Christ's coming. He abolished death. He gave life through the gospel, through the good news of the gospel. So we all at one time heard the good news that Christ has died for our sins and that he rose from the grave. And because of his resurrection, we too will have life eternal. That's good news. Now, we're going, let's go over to Peter here. We're going to flip back and forth between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. So Peter wrote these two letters, epistles. And the first time in 1 Peter, he wrote to encourage those scattered about in Asia Minor to encourage them in the time of persecution. In 1 Peter 2.12, it says they were slandered as evildoers. They were slandered as evildoers. And in 1 Peter 1.6-7, it says that they went through various trials. And in 1 Peter 4.12-14, and we'll go there and we'll read that one. 1 Peter 4.12-14, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. So we know that uh, in Asia Minor, the Christians were going through persecution. This is possibly the persecution that they faced under the emperor Nero, who set Rome ablaze, and he blamed the Christians. Sounds like today's politicians, doesn't it? Let's blame everybody else for our problems. It's not my fault. It's the people. And so Nero blamed the Christians for burning down Rome. This could be what it's referring to here. But regardless, they're going through some heavy persecution. And Peter's trying to uh, encourage them. Say, stay steadfast. You'll make it through this because you're a child of God. And then in 1 Peter 5, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, it says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So Peter says, you know who's behind all this trouble? It's Satan. Who are our spiritual battles against? Is it against flesh and blood? No, it's against the spiritual forces in the world. It's against Satan. 
And so that's why Peter wrote his first epistle, to encourage believers in the time of persecution. But the second epistle, the second letter of Peter, was for a greater danger, a greater danger. What can be greater than physical persecution or, or, or mental persecution? What could be greater? Your own lives going into the eternal fire pit. That's what's greater. Because physical persecution, you still have life eternal if you're a believer. But if you fail under, under false doctrine, under false teachers, you're eternally doomed. That's the greater danger. And so in the second letter, Peter is addressing false teachers, false teachers and false doctrine, false beliefs. It wasn't that the false teachers were just out of nowhere saying crazy things, like you should believe in rocks or trees. They were taking the truth and twisting the truth and perverting the truth. And so Peter is encouraging them in the time of false teaching. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, we hear that, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And so we see here, and then it says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. So they bring in destructive heresies. What's a destructive heresy? It's what I was talking about. They twist the truth. They twist the truth. It's destructive because people follow along with it. They hear one truth, and they add many false things to it. Destructive heresies. And that's what was going on during this time period. And that's a much greater danger than persecution. So when you watch the news and you worry about all of the riots, you should be far more concerned with false teaching in the church. That's right. You should be more concerned with false teaching in the church than anything that's going on in the news. You want your children to be safe on the streets, wherever they go to school? You should be more concerned with your children knowing the Lord and having true doctrine, true teaching. That's far more important. When it says the master who bought them, what we're we're talking about here, what Peter's talking about, he's talking about their proclamation of faith. These are apostates. They knew that Jesus paid for the sins of those who believed. They claimed to be believers. They claim to be believers. These are apostates. We see that in chapter 2, verse 20. It says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, we're talking about the false teachers, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again, again, entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. These are apostates. They knew the truth. They proclaimed to be Christians, but they were false. They were false. And that's why they were able to get in the church and try to twist the word, twist, pervert it. 
What are the other characteristics of these false teachers? Well, they were self-willed, and these are all in chapter 2, starting at uh, about verse 10. They were self-willed, self-centered, daring, reckless, brazen, bold. They were like unreasonable animals. They ridiculed believers without rational reasoning. They reveled in the daytime. They had the outward, open boldness of their sin. They reveled in their deceptions. They enjoyed their sin. Their their eyes were full of adultery. (laughs) Eyes full of adultery. That was their main focus. They enticed unstable souls. Unstable souls. So we're talking about people in the church here. They entice unstable souls with false doctrine. So they use bait and trickery. Bait and trickery. Their hearts were trained in greed. Their goal was wealth. Does that sound familiar when you turn on the TV and you see the prosperity preachers? Absolutely, doesn't it? Their teaching was like a festering disease of bacteria. Festering bacteria. It just grew and grew. A little bit of bacteria just kind of festers. An infection. But what did they need? They needed medicine. What was the medicine that the people needed? The truth. The truth. So that's what Peter wanted to do. He wanted to deliver the medicine of truth through reminders and stirring them up for responses. Reminders and responses. That was the medicine that he gave them for the festering bacteria of false doctrine. You see, when false doctrine gets in the church, it spreads. People start to believe it, and those people spread that same false doctrine. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, we're going to talk a little bit about the stirring up that Peter was doing. It says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring you up. Stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. There's the reminder. He's stirring them up by reminding them that you should remember, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers, those are the false teachers, mockers, will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, here's what they're going to say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Where is this second coming you're talking about? Everything continues the way it always has been. You weird Christians, what are you worried about? All this Jesus stuff. Mocking, mocking, mocking. So they denied the day of the Lord. They denied the day of judgment for unbelievers. They also denied the return of Christ. So all the very fine elements of Christianity, they denied. So Peter reminds believers of God's grace and stirs them up to respond in faith and love. So what should we do today? Although this was written to uh, a group of folks many centuries ago, what should we do today? We should respond in the same manner. Don't we have the same issue? Do we not have false teachers? 
Absolutely. So therefore, we should respond in the same way by, res- by remembering and responding. Remembering God's grace and his blessings and responding accordingly. Remember and respond. So remember that as we go through the remembering and responding. So now let's read the text. Second Peter, verse one, or chapter one, verse one through seven. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would be with me today as I proclaim your truths from your word. And I pray that all those listening here today, including myself, can apply these words and and just uh, remember all the graces, all the blessings you've bestowed upon us and help us all to respond accordingly. Amen. So, what is the first thing that Peter tells us to remember? What is the first thing he tells us to remember? Faith. Faith. Remember that God has given you the gift of faith, the gift of faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith. Faith brings about other gifts, other gifts. So it's not just faith within itself. It's almost as if you get faith, and out of that explodes more gifts. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, justification, that means being right with God, no longer guilty. So by being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God, another one. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have union with Christ through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope, hope, of the glory of God, our eternal glory ourselves. Those are amazing things. It's almost as if you receive faith, and bursting from faith comes more gifts and more gifts. What did David say? His cup overflows. His cup overflows. So faith is a gift. So then it says here, In verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind. They received faith. Faith is a gift from God. We should all feel excited about that. We should all be excited about the gift of faith. 
What is the second gift? He says, uh, the faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Righteousness. That's the second gift that we should feel blessed to have. Imputed righteousness. The righteousness that Christ has given us, that's right, the righteousness, the goodness, the purity, the excellence of Christ that he has given us on the cross. Think about it. When Christ was there on the cross, he took our sins. We always remember that. He took our sins. He bore our sins on the cross. But he also gave us his righteousness. It's the righteousness that we never had before that. We never were good before that. We never even sought to please God. We never sought to do anything good. It was the righteousness that Christ gave us, imputed. But we also gave him our sin. That is a gift. Amen? Righteousness. Just think of that. Every single sin you've ever done, you're guilty. (laughs) But God. But God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin, he knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is amazing. That's an amazing gift. The next gift is a three and four combination, grace and peace. It's like a one-two punch. <laughs> Another, two gifts all in one, grace and peace. It says here in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. That means it doesn't come from you. It comes to you. Grace and peace. What's, we talked about grace already, didn't we? But when he says grace and peace be multiplied to you, he says may it grow, may it continue. This is the grace of God. May it continue in you. It's our sanctification. It's our growth as Christians. God's grace. He's given us his son. But it doesn't stop there. He's given us his spirit that continues to strengthen us and help us to grow. And what Peter is saying here, may that grace be multiplied to you abundantly. It's God's kindness and favors continue to be upon you. We're not talking about new cars or new houses, though. We're not talking about. We're talking about spiritual blessings. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we get a picture of that. It says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The work of the Spirit in you is always helping you to grow. You become a more and more mature Christian as the days go on. This is a gift of God, his grace upon you. He says, Peace be multiplied to you. This is peace with God. And peace during trials. Peace with God. We receive peace with God because we're no longer enemies of God. We also have increased peace during trials. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That means our relationship was put back together. We were reconciled to God through what? Through the death of his son through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life so because of Christ's death we've been made right with God but because of his 
resurrection and his life eternal, we also will have life eternal. Christ is currently interceding for us, for God, in front of God. He's currently interceding for us. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3 again, down at verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's serious stuff. However, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? We're supposed to look for it. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, I love that, but, According to his promise, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Does that bring a smile to your face? It should. Do you see the opposition there? The earth burning up with intense heat? But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth? Right? When you hear about global warming and the earth's going to destroy itself? What's global warming to you, Christian? Heaven! Isn't that exciting? I get excited. That's salvation. That's God's grace upon us. And Peter is saying, may it it go even more. May it be multiplied. We have peace as a result of of assurance. So since we know our future, that gives us peace. Because we know our future. We shouldn't walk around whole humdrum because a certain person got elected or didn't get elected. Are you kidding me? As Christians, right? What is the world going to look at us like? You have your hope in the almighty Jesus Christ, but you can't handle a certain person getting elected? What if you were somewhere starving with no clothes and no roof over your head? Then what? Would you care about who's elected in the United States of America? Or would you care about eating and water? (laughs) Or who your God is? Gift number five. The knowledge of God, the Father, and of Christ. In verse 2 it says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So knowledge, (laughs) that's a gracious gift of God. But not just any knowledge. We're not just talking about knowing the algorithms of math and all these other things, which I know nothing of because I don't like math. We're not talking about that kind of knowledge. We're not talking about how many... Bible verses you can remember, not even that kind of knowledge. What kind of knowledge are we talking about here? It comes from Bible verses. It comes from that. Well, we're talking about knowing God, having a relationship with God. How many people have you met that can quote 50 million Bible verses, but they're no closer than God than a stick? 
Or how about the person who quotes so many Bible verses when they talk to you, you can't have a normal conversation without them quoting some Bible verse, but their lifestyle doesn't match it. Do they truly know God? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that. We can all quote that, right? What does it mean? Whoever believes in him, does it mean believing he exists or entrusting yourself into him for everything? Do you live it out? So knowledge, knowing God. Where does the knowledge come from? It comes from scripture. Absolutely. I'm not discounting scripture. I love scripture. We all love it, right? It comes from scripture, but you don't just end there. You can't just obtain the knowledge and do nothing about it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not, this is uh, Peter saying this as an apostle, remember? He followed Christ around for three and a half years. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the life and power, I'm sorry, the power coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter saw him. He saw his glory on the mountain of transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. So God said to this, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's saying, you know what? I saw a glimpse of God's glory in Christ, the incarnation. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. But look what he says next. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. (laughs) God's word made more sure. It's more sure than his eyewitness account. It's more sure to which you do well to pay attention. Pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever, was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what is Peter saying here? He's saying the word was more important than what he saw and experienced. The word is more important than what you saw and experienced. So it's through the word, through the knowledge of the word, it's where you really get to know who God is. That's how you grow closer to him. But if you're not in the word, you're missing out. You're missing out. That's a spiritual blessing. Did you notice that the true knowledge and interpretation of this, the Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit? It says in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but what? Men moved by the what? Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Scripture, the authors, were inspired by the Spirit. The reader, us, we're illuminated, or the Scripture is explained to us because of the Spirit. So you have a two-way thing here. The Spirit inspired the Scripture. We understand the Scripture because of the Spirit. Without that connection, you don't have a connection. It's like an electrical arc. 
right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Gift number six, or blessing number six. In verse 3 it says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The key word is granted. It's been given by God. What's been given by God? First of all, everything that has anything to do with life and godliness. Your next question should be, what's that mean? What's life and godliness? Well, first of all, the everything. Those are all of our resources, all of our spiritual resources we could ever, ever need. God has given us abundantly every spiritual resource we could ever, ever need. Ever. You don't need to go anywhere else but God for your spiritual resources. Not a psychologist for your spiritual resources. Not a tarot card reading or newspaper thing. What do you call those things? The horoscopes. None of that stuff. God. Everything. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Be Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of the army? No. Put on the full armor of what? Of God. He gave it to you. It's his armor. You just got to put it on. Don't mistake it to be that it's your armor that you made that you're going to go to battle with. It's his armor. He gave it to you. Those are spiritual resources. It says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that... You will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The full armor of God is given by God. (laughs) Put it on. Would you ever go outside of here right now if people were shooting at us and you had armor to put on, an armored car, and you wouldn't get behind it? That would be crazy. Put on the full arm for God. He's given you his gift of spiritual, uh, his spiritual gifts. He's given them to you, his spiritual resources. Why do we receive these spiritual resources? Who receives them is a better question. Everyone or the saved? Of course, it's the saved. You're protected from the evil forces because of your salvation. When you got saved, you received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows you to have this armor. What about life and godliness? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Well, we just talked about that. And it goes on more specifically talking about our sanctification, our growth in Christ. 
The Holy Spirit allows us to grow in our relationship. It allows us to grow in our relationship, which also protects us. Are you still a baby in drinking the milk? Are you eating the, milk, the meat? Are you growing? Are you growing? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. The milk of the word. That's our spiritual source. Why? Why? Why should we? So that by it you may grow, grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So this is a gift. This is a gift. This is a spiritual uh, thing that God has given us. His armor, his sanctification. So that's everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then it says, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. His own glory and excellence. It says, there's that knowledge word again. So it's by knowledge. It's always by knowledge, right? When uh, Romans chapter 12, it says, the renewing of your mind. How can your mind be renewed? Through experiences or by knowledge? Obviously, through knowledge. Your mind is renewed. It's like a computer program being reprogrammed by the knowledge of God. But this is talking about the knowledge of him. It's your personal relationship of God through what you learn in the Scripture. What does it mean when it says he called us to his own glory and excellence? What's God's glory? What's the characteristic of his glory? We just sang a song about his glory. It's his excellence, his majesty, his fame, his awesomeness. Right? How is he able to give us all these gifts? Because he is the majestic God. What is his excellence? It's his virtue, his purity, his perfection. It's, it's the same thing that we're talking about in salvation. Could we have paid for our own sins? Of course not. We had to have a perfect, unblemished lamb to pay for our sin, sins. Any true judge would never let someone go free of their sins. But God provided a lamb. And so through his honor, his glory, his dignity, his majesty, he could never let you get away with your sins. You had to have paid for your sins, but his son paid for those sins. That is mighty. That is awesome. So those things are characteristics of his divine power. His glory and excellence are characteristics of his divine power. He's able to do anything he wants. What is promise number seven? It's the promises. It's the promises. In verse four, it says, For by these, that's by his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. He's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Well, why are they precious? Well, they're precious by what we talked about in the beginning. Salvation is a precious thing. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says uh, in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. 
of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's the but God again. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. So while we were still dead in our transgressions, we're dead in our sins. There's nothing we could do. We're, it's like we're in the quicksand, sinking. But God made us alive together with Christ. So what's one of his promises? Salvation. He promised to save those who believe in him. Is it uh, just eternal rewards or is it rewards now? It's now. We have the Spirit. We have communion with Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7, the rest of it says, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Did you guys hear that? In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. It's not done yet. It's getting better. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about uh, earthly uh, gifts here. Don't think I'm saying that you're going to get a new car next week. We're talking about spiritual blessings will grow. So, number eight, gift number eight. So with that, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. By them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So by the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's right. You and I will become partakers of the divine nature. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I told you before, we're talking about his glory, his excellence. Those are characteristics of his divine nature. Moral, uh, uh, moral purity, immortality. That's what it means when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Once we're born again, we're no longer the old self. We have blessings. We, we take upon his divine nature right now. Why? Because we have the gift of the Spirit that guarantees us a future. But we also become a partaker of the divine nature in a fuller sense when we receive glory in heaven. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We will be like him. The divine nature. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. 
God will dwell among us. Just think of that. (laughs) And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear, every tear, no sadness, from their eyes. And there uh, there will no longer be any death. So no sadness, no death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. No pain? Just think of that. No pain? The first things have passed away. That's amazing. That's the divine nature, guys, in eternity. So, when we receive that divine nature, look at what happens at the same time. It says that uh, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having, at the same time, escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The lust causes corruption. The lust causes corruption. The lust is in opposition to the divine nature. We escaped our old selves, and now we're our new selves. The lust is the opposition to the divine nature. What is lust? It's our evil heart, our depraved minds, our evil desires. Our lust is our desires. That lust led to corruption. The corruption is the actions. So our desires led to corrupt actions. We escaped by being born again into unity with Christ, who paid for believers' sins. We're born again into the divine nature. Isn't this beautiful, guys? The transaction is amazing. Just think of that. We're born again to the divine nature. So those are the gifts, the nine gifts that God has given us. Those are the things we should remember. Those are the things we should remember. And those are beautiful, beautiful things. Well, then starting in verse 5, Peter starts to stir up the believer to action. It's like a call to arms. A call to to action, to do something about what you know. Knowing of the blessings, knowing of becoming the divine nature of the uh, grace of God. What are you going to do about it? And in verse 5 he says, Now for this very reason also, applying diligence in your faith, supply. We'll stop right there again. Now for this very reason also, the reason of all the things he just said, knowing all the things he just said, all the blessings that God has bestowed upon you. What is he saying to do? He's saying, applying all diligence. So be diligent to do what? In your faith. So by the work of faith, not by your own works, supply. And then we're going to go through the list of the things that he wants you to supply. You notice it says faith. Why does he say in your faith? Well, in James chapter 2, we all know that part about faith and works. And in James chapter 2, it says, verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? (laughs) Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and none of you says to them, or, uh, and one of you says to them, go in peace. <laughs> Be warmed 
and be filled. (laughs) And yet, you do not give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So, he's saying that in your faith, because of the you having faith, because of the power of faith that God gave you as a gift that we learned before, because of that, produce works. We know that from God's grace, he's given us faith, which produces works. From grace to faith to works. But not that of our own. <laughs> In Ephesians 2, uh, Ephesians 2, down at verse 8. says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So because of God's grace, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So good works are part of the Christian lifestyle, but it's a result of faith. It's not the other way around, that your works prove your faith. If you have faith, you'll do the works. So Peter is stirring up the believers based on their faith to be diligent and supply the following things. To be diligent, that means working hard at it, being precise, focusing on it. What does he tell you to supply? Supply. That means bring out from yourself. Do this from the spirit that's within you by the Holy Spirit's workings. Number one. Verse five. For now, for this very reason also, applying diligence in your faith, supply, number one. This is the first response. Moral excellence. Supply moral excellence. He doesn't say do the best you can. What can you do, you poor sinner? He says, supply moral excellence. And he says to do it diligently. Diligently supply moral excellence. Not a kind of lazy Christianity. Let go, let God. What can I do? No. Diligently supply moral excellence. That's moral purity. It's having a high moral standard. We know in uh, verse 3 that God called us by his own excellence. (laughs) His own excellence. So we mirror that excellence by supplying excellence. (laughs) It's been given to us. What are we going to do with it? We're going to supply it back. Supply moral excellence. The second thing that we should respond and do in verse 5 And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Remember, it's by knowing God that you are saved, right? Right? Because of the faith. And now he's saying supply knowledge. (laughs) It's knowing God's will. It's knowing the difference between good and evil. What does that lead to? Good discernment, good choices. You can make good choices when you know the difference between good and evil. How do you know the difference between good and evil? 
right here. It all goes back to the scripture inspired by God, which is another gift. (laughs) So basically, it comes down to leaning on God, right? What is the next response? Verse uh, 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. And in your knowledge, self-control. Self-control. That's the next thing we should supply or that we should respond in doing. Self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, isn't it? Self-control. What is self-control? It's a person who has uh, control over his desires, especially his sensual desires. It's mastering yourself. It's putting control over yourself. Self-discipline, self-restraint, having a stable mind, a consistency of conduct, a fixed heart by trusting in God. Do we have all those things? Do we have all those things? We're supposed to exercise those things. And not only that, how does he say we're supposed to do that? Fervently, right? Right? Fervently. He did, however, give us the divine nature, didn't he? He did give us the spirit that enables us to do those things. What is the next thing that we should respond in doing? Number four, the fourth thing. And in your self-control, perseverance. In your self-control, perseverance. Perseverance is the same word as endurance, steadfastness. Remember in 1 Peter, he was encouraging them to be steadfast and persevere in the midst of persecution. And now he's saying, be steadfast and have endurance in the face of false teaching. It is an enduring work to deal with false teaching. (laughs) You have to persevere. You have to be steadfast, immovable. Why? Why do we have to do those things? Well, because the false teachers were pushing those things, right? In chapter 2, verse 13, we see, I'll start at 12, but these, talking about the false teachers like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it pleasure. These are the false teachers. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. So they're deceptive as they carouse with you. So the false teachers are mixed amongst the people, and they're carousing with the people. They're, they're conversating. They're fellowshipping with the people. But what do, what do they bring? Deception. We know that Satan is the father of all lies, don't we? Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, they entice unstable souls. They entice having their heart trained in greed to curse children. Down in verse 18, verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. 19, promising them freedom, so they promise things 
They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. They promise you'll be free, everything will be fine, but they're slaves of corruption. False teaching. You must have perseverance in the face of false teaching. But you notice the perseverance comes from trusting in the promises of God. That's where the perseverance comes from, from trusting in God's word. The next thing. And in your perseverance, godliness. Godliness. That's pure, true worship of God. Having awe of him, reverence, respect for God. True worship. Not defiling your worship. Not bringing things worldly into the worship. True worship of God. The next thing, last two, number six and number seven, that we should respond with. Number six, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. That's our friendship to other believers. The word Philadelphia is, uh, the base of this word is what the word Philadelphia came from. It has to do with a, having a spiritual bond with others. A spiritual bond with others. It's being, uh, having a likewise love for one another in the church. And then he ends with love. Love. That's having affection, goodwill to all men. Love. So here Peter starts all the way with the grace of God. The grace of God. And he gives us many things to remember about God's blessings. And then he ends with love. So in response to all of God's blessings, he ends with love. And that's not by coincidence. Because God's blessings is God showing us his love. How should we respond? And what? Once again, how should we respond? Absolutely. So, brothers and sisters, be blessed today. Remember that God has given you many, many blessings. So in the midst of persecution, trouble, trial, and mostly false teaching, remember God's blessings and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that uh, we're able to come here today and worship you in awe and reverence and that we can trust you, we can trust your word, and we know it's true. And as we leave here today, I just pray that we can honestly follow you and remember your blessings and act out the things we learned today. Amen.